weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the government and how we are supposed to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The very next week, we talked about death and how there'll be no marriage after death. This week, we're going to talk about money and giving. And so these are not, you know, fun subjects. And if you stick with us through all of this and you're still here, we know you are truly committed. And so this is kind of a, maybe a, a, you know, pruning process here. And it's not going to get any easier. Chapter 13, we're going to be talking about the end times. So this will be fun. And I just want to point out, this is the beauty of going through the Bible the way we do at our church. You know, I I don't sit around and say, what do I think they need to hear today? Or what do I want to preach about today? That's not the method. We just go through the book. We commit ourselves to go through the book. And whatever topic comes up next, that's what we need to hear from God. And we're just going to trust Him in that. And so in light of that, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 38, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance." But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing on us once again as we surrender ourselves under your word. I pray that you'll bless us in our approach that we take to coming systematically under your word. Do your ministry among us. Uh, I pray that as a result, we would be faithful like this woman in this story who gave all. Show us this morning what it is that you want us to give. You are worth it. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we looked at Mark 12, verses uh, 28 through 34, where Jesus gives us the two great commandments, love God and love others. And now today I think we kind of see that fleshed out. What does it look like to love God and love others? We're going to see some practical examples. We're going to actually see an example to avoid and an example to follow in what it looks like to love God and to love others. So let's begin by talking about an example to avoid. The example to avoid in our passage is the example of the scribes. He talks about them in verses 38 through 40. The scribes are referenced 20 times in Mark's gospel. And by the way, it's never positive. Uh, Listen to how Robert Stein describes the scribes. He says, A scribe was a professional person who possessed the ability to write and interpret texts. By New Testament times, it was associated with religious duties, such as interpreting biblical text and serving as guardians of the tradition. Although a scribe could belong to any Jewish sect, or to none at all, the majority were associated with the Pharisees. They are intimately involved with the elders and chief priests in the plot to kill Jesus. So I think this is why Jesus begins our passage here by saying, beware of them. Watch out for them. Let me caution you 
against the scribes. Look at verse 38. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now let's ask this question. What's wrong with robes? What's wrong with greeting people in the marketplace? That doesn't sound so bad. What's wrong with that? We have to do a little bit of sort of, I guess, kind of reading between the lines, make some assumptions here. And I think we can make some safe assumptions, some safe deductions that what he's criticizing them here for is their pride. They carry themselves in such a way that reveals they want the attention. They want the glory. They want people to revere them. And in so doing, they're breaking the first commandment. The first commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And they're saying, check us out. It's about us. And so I, I, I believe what he's describing here with the long robes and the greetings and, and the, the, the seating and all of that, I think it's all a description of describing how they are seeking personal honor in a way that he's very critical of. He also calls them out for violating the second commandment. Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Once, once again, what exactly is happening that he's critical of? We don't know for sure, but I think we can make some safe assumptions. They are exploiting widows, and somehow it's connected to prayer. So perhaps they're saying, I'll pray for you, I'll come pray for you, your house, your family. But in return, you know, <laughs> you're going to pay a little bit. Perhaps that, something like that is happening. Jesus is very critical. Matthew 23 gives us some more insight into this. Matthew 23, verse 3 Jesus describes the scribes as saying, they preach but do not practice. They preach but do not practice. They they speak, they say things, but they don't live it. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They kind of put on a spiritual facade. It's very external. It's about what others see, but it's it's not genuine. It's not authentic. It's not internal. Once again, Matthew 23, 6 and 7. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They want to be exalted by others. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 23 and he says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is talking about true leadership. The true leaders among you are not the ones who are seeking honor and glory. The true leaders among you are not the ones who are trying to be revered. The true leaders among you, he says, are the ones who are serving you. And of course, Jesus set that same example, didn't he? If any person deserved reverence, if any person deserved glory during his time here on earth, it was Jesus. And yet he didn't come for that. He came to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now he says, follow me. And particularly if you're going to be a leader. If you're going to be a leader among God's people, he says, the way you follow and the way you lead is by serving. You don't look for the honor. You don't look for the glory. You look for the person to serve. And uh, this is what ministry looks like. Speaking of which, we do have a deacon ordination service tonight. I'm excited about it. We'd love to have you come back and participate in that. Uh, I've heard some horror stories of, of other churches uh, where deacons are said to, quote, run the church. And uh, there's a couple problems with that. There's a couple problems if you have a church where the deacons run the church. One is it's not the New Testament pattern, right? You don't see in the New Testament the deacons serving in an authoritative role. The, the, the word deacon literally means servant. And the way that they were uh, brought about, the way the ministry happened is there was a result of there was a great need among the church. And so the deacon ministry arose so that the deacons could serve so that those who 
taught and preached could teach and preach. A second problem with this kind of mentality of the deacons running the church is in a lot of situations, in a lot of churches, what that means is th- this is the person who has the title. This is the person who has the title that suggests authority, that suggests getting to, to call the shots, that suggests getting to set the direction. And yet in a lot of those churches, these are not the same people who are turning around and serving and actually doing the ministry. And that's just a really problematic situation. If you have a church or any organization for that matter, and the people who are calling the shots and the people who have the authoritative titles and the people who are sort of in charge of the direction, if they're not serving and they're not servants, you got a disaster. And I just want to point out, I'm very grateful at our church, our deacons don't see themselves that way. They see themselves as a serving ministry. They recognize the biblical role of deacons. They don't see themselves as a governing body. And this is why we always say when it comes time to nominate men to serve as deacons in our church, we always say nominate the people who are already serving. We're not looking for the people who have a lot of money. We're not looking for the people who have great prestige out there. We're looking for people who are already serving. And in some ways, we're just kind of making formal what is already happening. We're just recognizing it. And, and I want to highlight that's, that's John Klein, who we are ordaining tonight. He's, he's just a servant. He's already serving. It, it was a pretty easy thing. He's already serving in a number of ways at our church. And, and also, what's really neat about John, he grew up in our church. So think about that. He grew up in our church. He was served by our church. He was served by many of you. Teaching Sunday school, teaching Awana, leading in ministry. He was served by you. And now he is serving you and he's serving the church and he's going to be formally recognized as a deacon. And so uh, I'm excited about tonight and excited for John in that way. But Jesus warns here about leaders who have the title leader or the title scribe, but they're not actually serving the way they're supposed to. And he says in verse 40, they will have the greater condemnation. A greater condemnation. That suggests there will be varying degrees of punishment. There will be varying degrees of reward. They will have the greater condemnation. Another verse that, that points to this is James 3.1, which says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you teach, you're, you're going to be judged according to a higher standard. You're going to be judged according to a greater strictness. There are varying degrees here of, of reward and of, of consequences. This is a sobering reminder to me. Chris, you better make sure you avoid the example of the, the scribes here. There's a lot of people throughout church history who have followed the example of the scribes. Right? Let, let me mention one. Whitney and I went and watched a movie not too long ago, and I'm, by mentioning this movie, I'm not suggesting you should go watch it. In fact, I'm going to say, don't go watch it, unless you want to waste your time. Uh, but it's a movie about the life of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, who were famous televangelists in the 80s, um, I, why in the world did we go watch it in the first place? I'm interested in the evangelical movement, and I don't see them as evangelicals, but they're kind of connected to the movement. And so that was why I was interested. I think I lost my right to suggest movies for about a year as a result of that, uh, and rightly so. Uh, but the, the Bakers taught a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, a health and wealth gospel. They, they said things like, God wants you. To be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. Oh, and by the way, if you send us money, you know, I'm sure he will make you healthy and wealthy. And they got a lot of money. They had a TV show, Praise the Lord, PTL, 
and, and, and raised a ton of money. People would call in. And now you look back and you can tell a lot of the money did not go to ministry. There, weren't much, there wasn't much ministry happening. A lot of it went to them, their pockets, and their kind of pet projects. In fact, Jim Baker got in trouble for this with the law and spent a significant amount of time in federal prison. And by his own confession, while in prison for the first time, he read the Bible thoroughly. All right? And realized, after reading the Bible, he came to realize, oh, maybe this book doesn't teach a prosperity theology. And so he got out of prison, and guess what he decided to do? Go back into ministry. Use that term very loosely. So he now is leading a ministry again in Branson, Missouri. No longer called Praise the Lord PTL. Now PTL stands for Prophets Talking Loudly. So he's really into end times. And now guess what he's doing? He's selling products, making money, which, by the way, has gotten him back in trouble with the law again. And he's selling these end times survival kits. You know, the end times coming. You need a survival kit. Send your money to us. We'll get you the kit you need. And in addition to that, he also was selling something that he said would cure the COVID. And he got in trouble for that. He's back to his old ways again. Jerry Falwell Sr. said of Jim Baker, quote, He was the greatest scab and cancer on the face of Christianity in 2,000 years of church history. Pretty strong language. It's incredible to me that Jesus gives such clear warnings, and yet you have people who, who, who fall for this. And my encouragement to you is be cautious in who, what ministers you give money to, what ministries you give money to. Ask a couple discerning questions. Number one, is the gospel being taught? Like the clear, articulate, explicit gospel. Uh, our sin, Christ's death, His resurrection, our need to put our faith in Him. Is the gospel central? Like, are you hearing it? Is it repeated? Not just they have a statement on their website, but do you hear the gospel regularly? If not, I wouldn't give a dime to, to that ministry. Another question to ask, is there actually ministry happening? Is there, is there evidence? Have you seen it? Have you seen ministry actually taking place? If not, I wouldn't spend my money. Another televangelist made news in the recent years, Jesse Duplantis, a televangelist out of Louisiana. He was trying to raise $54 million in order to buy his third airplane. Right? And went on record saying, if Jesus were around today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey he would certainly be riding an airplane. Right? So therefore, send me money. Uh, so I just want to point out, we have plenty of examples to avoid. And now we're going to turn our attention to example to follow. Let's look at an example to follow. Look at verse 41. It says, he sat down. And, and you know, I want to say, no wonder he sat down. He's got to be tired. He's been having all these groups come at him with all these different questions, trying to trap him. That wears you out, physically, mentally, you know. He sat down, took a break, rightly so. Verse 41 says he watched people. He watched the people. Sometimes it's fun to watch people and just to kind of discern, what are they doing and why are they doing that? And he watched the people, and it says they're in this area of the temple called the treasury where people would bring their offerings. I read this past week where there were 13 different boxes where you could drop your offering and the different offerings and I also read where there was a metal, there was some metal that, that made up the boxes so when people dropped their money in, you could hear it. So picture people going up, you know, people are able to watch, you're able to sit and watch, and the people are going up to the various boxes, dropping in their money. You can hear it, right? 
Verse 41, many rich people put in large sums. So picture, hear it, listen, think about these families walking up, people walking up, and maybe they walk up to multiple boxes. You know, put a little in over here, a little in over here. You know, and then over here you drop just a ton of money and everybody, wow. You know, you can just hear the coins jingling throughout and everybody's sitting around, wow, did you hear that? Wow, they must have a lot of money. Wow, God must have really blessed them. Did you hear that? Right? Uh, by the way, I, I, you know, there are places where the giving of the offering at church is a little bit more of a public spectacle, especially different parts of the world. Some of them I've been to. And uh, one in particular that comes to my mind, uh, if you want to go look at it on YouTube, maybe later today, don't do it now. Later today, get on YouTube and type in Brother Franklin Offering and uh, check out one, one person who gives in a unique way. And you'll thank me later if you go check that out. Look at verse 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So this poor widow comes, she puts in two small copper coins. The, the Greek word is lepton. It just means it was the tiniest coin and it was worth the tiniest amount. The King James translates it mite. So sometimes this is called the widow's mite. Mite is actually a Latin translation, which just means, once again, a small coin, small amount. And our translation tells us which makes a penny. The Greek word behind penny is kadrontes. Uh, it was a Roman term, so it's Roman coinage. Some people think this is indication that Mark's writing to a Roman audience. But this particular coin, the Cadrantes, was worth one sixty-fourth of one day's worth of wage. So in other words, a very minimal amount of money. That's why our translators translate it worth a penny. And in other words, it's just a really, really finite, small amount. Verse 43. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. So Jesus, of course, finds a teaching opportunity. Very typical. He's sitting there. He doesn't just watch people. He says, guys, I want to teach you a lesson. You see that widow over there who just put in the two coins? Yeah. She just put in more than everybody else. And they had to say, uh, you know, you really do need to sit down. You really do need a break. You need a breather because she obviously didn't put in more. She put in significantly less. You know, what are you talking about? She didn't put in more. And you can chalk this up. This is one of those riddles of Jesus. Right? He has a lot of riddle-like statements. The shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. That doesn't make sense. The business owner who pays the 11th hour workers the same amount as the first hour workers. That's not good business. If you're last, you'll be first. If you're first, you'll be last. What? That's not how things work. If you want to gain your life, you've got to lose it. What? She gave more than everybody else. How? How is that possible? She, she clearly didn't give more. She clearly gave less. Jesus explains, verse 44, For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Yes, they gave more net-wise, net but when they got through giving, even though it was more, they had more left over in their pockets. So it didn't really cost them anything. It wasn't costly for them to give. Uh, the woman, on the other hand, just the opposite. She gave less total, 
But at the end of it, she had nothing left over. Zero. And I think to add to the drama, it says she has two coins. She hypothetically could have just dropped in one. And Jesus still could have commended her. Wow, look at that. She just gave half of everything she has. That two coins could have been in one. Jesus still could have commended her. She has two little coins and she puts in both. She gives everything she has. And I think this theme is consistent with the theme of Mark. She gave everything. She gave it all. And I think that's the theme that we've seen running throughout Mark's gospel. Give it all. Follow Jesus. Give it all. We see it right back at the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus' disciples left it all. They left their nets. They left their livelihood. They left their father. They left it all. And they followed him. Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, do you want to follow me? You've got to give it all. Take up your cross, crucify the flesh, and then follow me. It's a call to surrender all. It's a call to give all. The rich young ruler asked Jesus the question, Mark 10, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Give it all. Sell it all. Sell everything. And he says the man couldn't do it. He had too many possessions. And uh, the disciples say, wait a minute. If he can't get in, what about us? I mean, we've left everything. And Jesus says, you guys will get your reward. But it's nearly impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Last week, we looked at the greatest commandment, Mark twelve thirty. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I think the widow is the example of what it looks like to love God with everything. She's loving God with everything. She's giving everything. And I think she's an example for us to follow. She's, the, she's, she's included in the story to be an example for us to follow. This is what it looks like to give everything. Now let's ask the question, does that mean... Are you saying I'm literally supposed to give 100%? How, how could I literally give 100%? And, and, and I think going back to the passage that we looked at several weeks ago, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, I think is instructive for us here. When we give to Caesar, we honor God. Right? By giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, we are honoring God. So in a similar way... When you work and you provide for your family with, with the money... You're honoring God. You're supposed to do that. When you save money for a rainy day, and you save money so that you can be independent and not have to be dependent on others and rely on others, you honor God in that. The Bible talks about working and incentivizing people to work so that you can work, so you can make money, so you can uh, ha- you know, have your... You, you don't have to be dependent on others. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10-12 is an example. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the message of the Bible is work hard, earn money, don't be dependent on others. And by the way, we need to you know, incentivize people to work. It's a bad thing to, to remove incentives because people are supposed to work. So, Part of what we're here to do is to work. 
Now, the natural inclination is to say, well, I worked for it, so therefore it's all mine. Therefore, I can do with it what I want. And therefore, this brings us to a biblical principle, a key biblical principle, and that is God owns it all. Yes, you're supposed to work for it, and yes, you're supposed to provide for your family, and yes, you're supposed to save for a rainy day so that you don't have to be dependent on others. But it's not ultimately all yours. It's ultimately all God's. And so therefore, since that's true, He does want us to give some of it to His work and to His kingdom. And for us, that's through the local church. He wants us to give some of the money that we've earned to the local church for His kingdom purposes to advance. Now, that raises the question, well, how much am I supposed to give? How much? I think 10% is a good starting place. Right? And if you say, well, my goodness, I, I, I can't do that, you know. Uh, I'm just kind of give a little bit here and there, or, you know, I have a little bit in my pocket and I give it here. You, you can get to 10%. Maybe not overnight, maybe not quickly, but you can get there. And I would recommend it. It's good to give proportionately, sacrificially, regularly, to get a system in place. And if you need help with that, we have ministries. We can, we can help you with that. If you're not giving 10%, we would love to help you get there. But 10%, I'd say, kind of a starting place. You know, it's not, it's not the ceiling, it's, it's the floor. But let's ask this question. What about the woman in the story? What, what, if you're, what if you identify with the poor widow in the story who doesn't necessarily have a steady income? What does it look like? What does 10% look like for you? Right? It, 10% is not 10% of what's coming in necessarily. And I, I want to go back to the story. What's the heart of the story? The heart of the story is you can have a person who's giving 10% and it's a lot of money. You can have another person who just gives everything they have and at the end of the day, it's not that much, but it's everything they have. And it's sacrificial. And Jesus here, I want you to see, is commending her. He's not commending the people who have a ton and give 10%. Wow, look at them. Look at how much they gave. Though it is a lot. He's commending the person who gave in such a way where it cost her. It was everything. And this brings us to another key principle I want to point out, and that is God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need any of it, right? We learn this lesson from this, from this story. He doesn't need money. God is not sitting around saying, please give me your money. I really need it so I can advance my kingdom with your money. This is like the, the, the parents who help out the kid so the kid can buy a present for the parents for Christmas, right? Dad takes the kid to the store, says, I'm going to give you some money. Why don't you pick out something for mom? Kid picks out the present, gives it to mom. Mom doesn't say, oh my goodness, I needed that so badly. I'm so indebted to you now. You know, it's like this was mom's money to begin with, right? You still say, thank you. It's sentimental. It means a lot. But you didn't need it. Right? It came from your pocket in the first place. God owns it all. He doesn't need it. He's not saying, please, please give me your money. Right? Now, we are saying, you know, we need you to give. And by the way, we want to say thank you for giving. Right? Our church has given very faithfully through this season, the past year and a half, two years. Right now, we are currently uh, 1% ahead of our budget, which means what we anticipated bringing in and therefore budgeted. We are 1% ahead of that. So that's a good thing. Even better, we've spent less than we've received. That's a novel idea, right? We've spent less than we've taken in. Whoa, how novel. And, and we just met yesterday and had our budget meeting, and we have uh, a plan in place that we'll bring to you uh, in the next month or so 
and it's a plan for the budget for next year, and, and we, our heart is we are trying to be the best stewards we can be and uh, to, to recognize it is sacrificial giving, and we want to be the best stewards we can be with it. And so I, I want to say thank you. Thank you for giving, and we need you to give. I also want to say God doesn't need it. Right? And this raises a, a huge question. If God doesn't need it, and if my giving would only be you know, honoring to him if it's sacrificial and costly, why should I get motivated to give? Right? Have I just de-incentivized you from giving if I'm telling you God doesn't need it and in order for it to be truly honoring to him, it needs to be sacrificial and costly. You say, oh, why in the world would I give? Why would I do that then? And I want to point out, this woman in the story is not the only person in Mark's gospel who gives everything. There's another person who's going to give everything. And of course, it's Jesus. And he has everything to give to begin with. So his sacrifice is the most costly sacrifice anyone has ever made. And I love the way 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's one of my favorite verses for summarizing the gospel. Jesus was wealthy, needed nothing, had everything, existed in glory with the Father. But he gave it up and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Experienced poverty, literally and spiritually, cut off. Why? Why would a person do that? He says, it's by grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He showed grace. He gave you what you didn't deserve. He loved you. He humbled himself. And he gave you what you needed, himself. So that you who are poor, poor spiritually, perhaps poor financially, you who are poor, you who who don't have what you need, might be able to become rich. In other words, have everything you need. You can have everything you need, and in that sense, you can be rich because you can say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. But hallelujah, all I need is Christ. If I have Christ, I have everything. You who are poor can become rich because he who is rich became poor. We're going to sing a song here in a few minutes. In the last verse, listen to the last verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my heart, my all. My question for you this morning is this. Can you say that? Can you say, were the whole realm of nature mine? In other words, if I owned it all, if you owned it all, everything, can you say even that would be too minimal, too small of an offering that I owe God because he gave it all for me? Can you say that? If you owned it all, could you say, even if I hypothetically owned it all and gave it all to him, that would not be enough of an offering because of the sacrifice he's made for me. I can't help but give it all for him because he gave it all for me. If you can't say that, if you can't sing that, then what do you do? Go to the cross. Go to the cross of Christ and just sit there until it hits you. He gave it all for you. And sit there until you can't help but say, I trust you for it. 
and I can't help but want to get up and love you with everything I have, love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and give you everything I have. Following the example of the widow, I have to give you everything I have because you've given me everything you have. She gave everything. Let's pray.